the best is still yet to come. God is still doing this incredible work. And, and as we get on board with what he's trying to accomplish, we see life change take place. We see people. One of the things I loved about every story, if you listen to Chris read the stories, one of the things I loved about every story that was read was there wasn't one person that got up and said, hey, I had my life all figured out. Like everything was perfect and I was really content and everything was good about my life. Every one of the stories was a story of, of brokenness, a story of saying, man, I was, I was looking for that spot to take those next steps. And how God, every time, uses stories of broken people to do incredible things. So look at someone next to you and say, the best is yet to come. And, and say it like you mean it, man, the best is yet to come. God, we want to see you work in a very supernatural way. Story after story after story of God taking just incredibly broken people and using them to accomplish really big things. And in fact, that happens over and over. The, the illustrations they mentioned in the video, the people we're going to use as part of this series, God is in the business of taking broken people and doing incredible things through their journey. In fact, last week we kicked off this unqualified series by talking about King David. Uh, now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, he eventually becomes a king, becomes a really good king. He, he has flaws. He makes a lot of mistakes, but he becomes a really good king. In fact, at one point, he's called a man after God's own heart. But the truth was, was that early on, people didn't think he was going to measure up. Early on, people didn't think he was going to matter. He was the youngest of the sons of Jesse, and so he, even his own family didn't think he's not one of the ones that that the prophet would come and identify as being the next king, and Samuel wouldn't do that. And, and so he wasn't, he wasn't the, the strongest, he wasn't the biggest physical specimen. His older brother was that. Uh, he was kind of a pretty boy. They said he had a ruddy complexion and nice eyes, and he was, he was pleasant to look at. And not what you think of when you think of this warrior king, and yet God says, that's the one that I've chosen. And everyone would have looked at him and said, well, he doesn't fit the part. And so I ask a question this morning for us. How many of you felt like in the past, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about this. How many have felt like in the past that, man, I feel like at times I don't fit the part. I feel like at times I don't, I don't measure up. There's probably someone who, who does fit the part. There's probably someone who they have life figured out a little bit more than I do. Or, or, or it just seems like, man, when I look at their family, they, they, just, they have something I don't have. And, and so when I, when I look at life, there's sometimes I feel like, I don't fit the part. I can identify. Because back in sometime around October, it's before the holidays last year, um, my wife and I had a rear. We both had a Saturday off. And so we were just kind of uh, hanging out, doing some different things, doing some shopping and whatnot. And, and I remember I went into this particular area, and, and there was a salesman. And, and the salesman, he was, he was trained well. First of all, he was probably 15 years younger than me. But he came up, and he was trained well because he was selling something I wasn't at all interested in buying. But he came up and he wanted to get, engage me as a potential customer. And so he comes up and he starts asking questions, just trying to engage me in dialogue and find out a little bit of my story. And so we're talking for not a long time, maybe five minutes. But he had, had built up enough of a rapport that he felt confident asking this question. He said, hey, listen, he's like, I like to play this game where I try to guess what it is the people that I'm talking to, what they do for a living. So can I ask you, he asked me, he's like, so can I ask you, what, what do you do for a living? Now, as a pastor, sometimes you have to be careful about this question. Because ultimately, and not that I'm, I'm not ashamed at all about what I do, I love what I do, and I don't have any problem telling someone this, but here's what happens. Anytime I mention to someone that I'm a pastor, like their demeanor changes. 
they start to think through, in our conversation, did I cuss at all? <laughs> like, legitimately, I promise you this. I've been working out before with people, and someone introduces, hey, this is my pastor. And they're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, 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 no, it's okay. I'm just a person. But, but, but so I, I sit in there, and this young man asks, what do I do for a living? And, and my first inclination was to do this. I was about to say, uh, actually, actually, son, I, I work for the government, and I'm not allowed to share what I do. Um, but I said, no, that'd be lying. I'm not going to do that to the kids. So I finally said, you know what, here, here. I'm actually a pastor of a local church. And he said, really? I was way off. And he started to go on with what he was going to try to sell. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on a second, Skippy. <laughs> Let's go back. What did you think I was? And he's like, oh, it's not that, it doesn't matter that much. I'm like, no, no, now it really does. <laughs> like, like, what did you think I did? And he's like, well, I thought you were maybe like a garbage man or something. Now listen, nothing against garbage collection people at all. It's honest living and all that stuff. But it's probably not, if you're trying to sell someone, it's probably not what you want to lead with. And so he kind of said that. I said, no, that's, that's funny. No, and, and fortunately, I like, don't have a low self-esteem or anything where I felt down about that. But, but I, I started to think, like, like what, do, what do people expect when pastors walk around on a Saturday afternoon that we have our coat and tie on? Obviously, they've never been at Ridgepoint before. <laughs> I think I have one suit for, like, weddings and funerals. That's about it. Um, but they expect us to walk around with suits and ties on and maybe the, the Bible under, under our arm at all times. And, and that just isn't realistic. But, but here's the thing why that's important is because I think sometimes the world thinks out of, of all of us, not just pastors and, and people on staff at church, but, but sometimes the world's perspective of what it means to be a Christian is that we always walk around, we always have life figured out, Everything is rosy and cheery and everything is wonderful. And then we face with this reality that, that it's not. And so this series is about the idea that, that, that prior to discovering who Jesus is, and sometimes even in the midst of the continued discovery of, of, of seeking and following him, that sometimes life gets messy. And, and we, we play this game where we, we get so uh, focused on, I, w- I want to be this, and I want to do this, and, and, and I want to be successful, and, and, and I want to have this, this identity where people look at me and think I have it figured out. And it just simply isn't realistic at all. Last week, we talked about this idea of, of how we shouldn't want to have both these characteristics, but we talked about the difference between competency and, and, and character. And ultimately, we want to have competency, we want to be proficient, but ultimately, deep down inside, he wants us to even be more focused on character. Well, this week, if you have your notes, you'll notice there are two more C words, different C words, and that's not going to be a theme throughout this series, but there are two more C words I want to give us as kind of juxtaposing two different ideas. But these two, unlike last week where he said both these are kind of good things, this week there's one that we all have a tendency to go to that isn't always our strong point. And that first one is... That you and I, we tend to be competitive. So the first one is competition. Competition. Let's talk about competition real quick. Because most of us in life, we tend to want to be competitive. Uh, It can happen on a sports field. I'll get to that in a second. But it isn't just a sports thing. Uh, Maybe you're the youngest of, of many children. And you found it necessary most of your life to compete for your parents' attention. Or maybe you're in the job market and you're working against other people. And what happens inevitably, because it's kind of hardwired into what I believe is really in our sin nature, is that you and I tend to be really, really competitive. 
And so instead of working with maybe our coworkers, we're finding out, hey, if, if I can prove myself as more excellent than this person, then I might get the promotion, I might get the raise. If, if in, in home, if I get more of our parents' attention, uh, that, that might mean more for me. And, and so we find ourselves being fueled by competition. It just is most obvious when it happens on a sports field. It happens in life. It just tends to be most obvious when it happens in a field of competition. Uh, for instance, two weeks ago, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, we went out, a bunch of us went out. We had about 25 people from the church went out and played some football on a Sunday afternoon. It was my first peek into some people in, in their competitive environments. And some people in our church are really competitive. I mean, I, I'd seen this before. I'd seen this on fields of competition before. I'd seen during competition as a pastor and as a youth pastor, people on the field of competition where, where they're running and they're elbowing and they're, and they're knocking people over and they're like kicking people and biting people. And that was the females in the competition. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Have you ever been to a high school girls soccer game? Much more competitive, much harsher. If you've been there, you've seen it before. Much harsher than sometimes high school guys' soccer games are, especially as they get more and more competitive and get nasty out there. Because for you and I, we have a tendency to be competitive and to allow that competition to fuel what we think of as our identity. Maybe there's, there, there's a guy, and he knows, i got to get in shape. i got to start working out. And it's been a long time since he's been to the gym. And so he walks up to the gym, and when he walks up to the gym, he feels like, like lazy, he feels like a sloth. I Man, I haven't been to the gym in forever. He works out one time, and he walks out of the gym all, man, I'm strong. Like, we, we, we have this, this problem, and some of the guys are laughing because they know. Like, the next day, the muscles are sore, and we're like, yes, my muscles are building after my workout yesterday. And, and we're, we're fueled by this desire to be competitive, we're fueled by this desire that if I can make myself look better than the person next to me, then it's going to somehow fuel my identity and it's going to make me feel better. And the problem is, we talked about this a little bit last week, the problem is, is that when I'm doing well, that makes me feel good. But when I start to struggle, my struggles also can become my identity. Which is why when we asked this question last week, who do people say that you are? Who do, who do you say that you are? And we answer that question, I am. This is an intensely personal, but also an intensely emotional decision. Because maybe last week you came into church and, and you felt really good. Man, things are, things are going my way and my family life's going pretty good. And the kids didn't fight on the way to church this morning and everything felt pretty good. But then the last week, things started to fall apart. Your house started to become ruined, and, and, and the family started squabbling, and, you, and you, instead of getting a promotion at work, you got maybe a condemnation by your boss because you did something wrong. And, and all of a sudden, because this is so intensely personal but also so emotional of, of, of a process, that we find our identity in our successes and failures. And so it fuels that competitive juice to say, I want to be competitive because when I'm winning, I feel better. But the problem about people when they're fueled by winning and losing is that I have a tendency to say, if winning makes me feel better, then I'm going to choose to win at all costs. And when I lose, I'm going to feel dejected and lost. And the problem in life is that we feel more often that we lose than we win. And then we start to think, well, I simply don't measure up anymore. Because when it comes to where we're at spiritually for a lot of us this week, we're going to have some spiritual high moments, but we're probably going to have some spiritually challenging moments. 
And it's in those moments where we start to struggle that we say, man, now I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if, if, if God's going to be able to work this out of my life. And then we start to talk about things in church like you could actually be used to do big things like the series is all about. And we say, no way. There's no way in the world I could do big things. JJ, you don't know my story. And this isn't just way back in my past. I'm talking about this was last night. I was making some of these same choices that tore me apart. And so what we're talking about today is this idea of confidence versus competition. Where do I start to gain confidence in my life? Last week, as we mentioned, uh, David is, is, is called, he's, he's called to become king. And as he's, he's called to become king, he has his flaws, he has his limitations. God says his character is more important than all those competent things that the world is looking for. Well, today, as we make this transition, we're going to look at a different group of people. And I referenced this, this last week, but the group of disciples that Jesus called. They weren't particularly proficient in areas of spiritual growth. They were just normal, everyday people. They were the tax collectors and the fishermen. Like, really, they were the, the bottom barrel people of, of their day. They were told from a young age, the way the Jewish culture worked was, was that the children who maybe came from more affluence and their parents were more uh, proficient in certain areas and more successful, they had a chance to go to school longer. And the ones that maybe came from families who weren't as successful, they were told at a young age, sometimes as young as eight years old, they were told, listen, you're, you're not good enough to continue on, even with your education, go learn your father's trade. And so the young men that Jesus calls to be his disciples, some of them, their dads were fishermen, and so when they got to school, and the school said at eight years old, you're not good enough to continue on. Go learn your father's trade. Now, their whole life, all they longed for was to hear, because at the top heap of the educational system was a rabbi who would come to them and say at the very top heap for the, for the elect of the elect, for the elite of the elite, the rabbi would come and say to the people who were the elite students that I want you to come and be my disciple. Come and follow me. For these disciples that Jesus ultimately chose, at a young age, they were told they weren't good enough. They weren't measuring up. They didn't fit the mold of what the world was looking for in religious leaders. And so go learn your father's trade. Go learn what it means to be a fisherman or a tax collector. Go learn what it means to be a garbage man. This isn't for you. This is for the elite. And then Jesus comes along. The master rabbi. And he comes to these disciples he says, drop your nets. Come and follow me. I don't care what your past looks like. Come and follow me. All that stuff that you're doing, it's not going to stand in the way anymore. God can use broken people to accomplish great things. So drop that past. Stop holding on to those things and come and follow me. And they did. And for the next three years, Jesus engaged with them. He talked to them. He trained them. He taught them. And he performed all these miracles in front of them. But there was one problem as we look at it right now. The problem is it doesn't take very long for outsiders to start to act like insiders. See, even the disciples, like at some point it would have just felt good just to belong. Like they thought they'd been rejected from the time they were young. But at this point, Jesus comes and says, hey, I want you to be a part of what's happening. And, and early on, they'd have been like, dude, I, that's all I want. Is I just want a chance to belong, 
to fit in. I just want a chance to do my part. But it doesn't take very long for outsiders to begin to act and to start to act like insiders. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. If not, the words are about to appear up on the screen. But in Luke chapter 9, beginning in 46, we have these people who were outsiders. They're outside of the religious elite who've been invited now to be followers of Jesus, to be partakers of his grace, and to, to truly be able to be his disciples. And of these disciples, it says this. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So what happens is these disciples who at one point were just, man, I'm just glad to be a part. Like, I just want to be part of the 12, and it's so cool to be here. At some point, they start to have a debate among the inside of them. They say, hey, which of you do you think is the greatest? Like, can you imagine this? Can you imagine for a second, even just here in the first service, there's a, there's a lot of people here for the first service this morning. If just in the first service, if we all start hanging out on a regular basis, and all of a sudden in our inner talking, there started to be this pride rise up, and we started to actually confide in the people around us, hey, which one of you do you think is the best? Like, do you think it's me? You think it's, like, maybe it's Jimmy down here. Maybe it's Jimmy this, uh, they start to have this, this debate, which one of us is the best? An argument arose to them as to which of them was the best. And I have a feeling in the midst of that argument, most of them was trying to argue that it was themselves. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And said to them, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you... Among you all is the one who is great. So Jesus comes in with this whole new economy of how things work. Because up until this point, the religious elite were the people who were up here. The religious elite were the people who had worked to that point, who had accomplished much, who said, I am accomplished. And because I'm accomplished, now people are going to come and they're going to come and serve me. But Jesus comes and says, no, not at all. You guys think because you're part of this inner circle that it makes you great. Jesus says, instead, I'm going to show you that to be great, you have to say not that I'm accomplished, but that I'm a servant, that I come to serve. And he says, because of that, God can use broken people just like you and me to accomplish huge and incredible things. And God is in the business of doing that very thing right now in our midst. Of saying God wants to use broken people to accomplish great things. So they have this argument about them. Which of them was greatest? And Jesus comes and says, it isn't like that. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, it would be one thing if this discussion popped up one time. For the most part, the ministry Jesus has with these disciples, for the most part, their ministry lasts about three and a half years. And those three and a half years in different texts throughout the Bible, we see this conversation come up not once, not twice, but even a, a third time. There's another time in Matthew's gospel, it seems to be in a different context, the discussion comes up. But then one more, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. A third time this conversation comes up. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. And this is actually 
in the midst of the discussion around the Last Supper. So this is at the end of the ministry. They've been with Jesus the whole time, and Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper before his death with them. And yet even in the midst of this most, this most trying, this most dire situation, there still seems to be this pride among them. Because it says this. A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So I think they knew that Jesus' ministry on earth was probably coming to an end. So they're probably thinking, now this is a legacy thing. But once again, the discussion comes up. Like, all right, guys, this whole thing's about to end. This, this thing that we've known as ministry for the last three and a half years, this is almost over. Something's happening. So at the end, which one of us is going to be considered to be the greatest? Could you sense Jesus' frustration right here? Like, guys, we're celebrating the Last Supper. Like, my death's about to happen. You're not even cognitively aware of what's taking place. But instead, there's this desire. There's still this competitiveness among you that you're battling each other. Instead of working together, you're battling each other. By the way, the competitive juices stop flowing after his resurrection. After his resurrection, they become all about Jesus. But here, right in the midst of this teaching, they're still having this battle. They're still engaging with, wait, which one of us is going to be the greatest? And he said this, and watch this, this is where it all turns. The, king, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So the king of the Gentiles, those who are not believers, when they're, when they're powerful, they exercise lordship. They think, man, I'm powerful, I'm in control, I am the greatest. But not so with you. He says, that's how the world looks at things. That's their economy. But I'm telling you, when I call you to do great things, it's not going to be according to the world's economy at all. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and leader is one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at a table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at a table, but I am among you as the one who serves. He says, listen, it's not about those things. It's not about the things that you're fighting about. You want to be big and powerful and important, and it's not about that. Most of us know boxing great Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's statement was, I am the what? The greatest. I'm the greatest. And he'd walk around with this air of confidence, this air of authority. And Jesus comes and says, that's not who we want to be. We want to be considered great in in the world's eyes. But here's the thing. There's one day Muhammad Ali was flying on a plane. And as he was flying on the plane, he, he sat down, he took his seat, and, and, and the stewardess, the flight attendant, came over, and the flight attendant said, uh, excuse me, sir, I need you to put on your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali looked at her with that confident air that he has, and he said, man, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant looked at him and said, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. Put on your seatbelt. You know, sometimes our confident air can be shot down because we're, we're not all that. So what I'm not proposing this morning is that we become brash and and confident outside of Christ. But that no matter how shady or sketchy our past is, that because of what Christ is trying to accomplish in our life, he says forget about those past things and press forward to what lies ahead in your life. Forget about past mistakes. Forget about the brokenness. That will forever be part of your past, but it needs to stay in the past. Because you today are a different person. And so three things, you're writing these three things down. How do we achieve victory in this specific area? Number one, confidence is a byproduct 
of us belonging. Confidence is a byproduct of us belonging. Now, when the world looks at this, the world says, wait a minute. When I feel the most confident, it's not just when I belong. It's when I start to experience success in some area. And that's why competitiveness gets the better of us. We become competitive because we think if I can just win this game, if I can just earn this job promotion, if I can just do any of those things, then my confidence is going to be found in the things that I have done. But we said last week, who we are is much more important than what we've done. Even though you and I have a tendency to evaluate ourselves based on the things that we've done. See, for most of us, if we fill this out, and if we're honest, not just because we're in church, we want to say the spiritual thing, but most people would fill this out with things where I am a, and it's something you've done, something you've accomplished, something that you've become, because it's something that you did. But Jesus said it isn't about that. Our confidence is a byproduct of us simply belonging. There's a basic human need that every one of us has. Some of us, because of past hurts and past failures and, and past pains, w- would say, I don't want to belong anymore. I don't, I don't want to fit in. I, I, I don't want to be a part of a group anymore. I'd rather be isolated and alone. But the truth is, is that if we're who we're called to be, confidence is a byproduct of us belonging. See, the disciples early on, they got that. When Jesus came and called them out of their jobs, and he started to perform these incredible miracles, The disciples were just, man, this is so cool just to be a part of this. But at some point, their competitive nature got the better of them, and they started saying, I'm glad I'm a part of this, but now how can I become the best of being a part of this? When confidence, what we want out of life, is a byproduct of of us belonging. If we're here today and we say, well, I, I can't belong, I feel like I've, 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 I've made too many mistakes in my life. That I come to church and I feel like, man, when I walk in, there's going to be condemnation. When I walk in, there's going to be rejection. Jesus took the most rejected people of his day. And he said, I want to use those people to literally transform the world. And he is still in the very same habit of doing that same thing today. Of saying, I want to take broken people, I want to take the mess of their life, I want to take the broken pieces of their life and make them into masterpieces. Like, I want to make that happen in their life. And once we start to get that, the confidence we long for is a byproduct of us simply belonging. Now, the challenge we face in that, because... We're going to talk about this all the time throughout this series. This very idea that, man, no matter what our past has, our past doesn't have to hold us back. We could have made some huge mistakes as late as last night. And Jesus says, I still want you to belong. I want to let you know that your life matters. And I want to let you know that you're important. That you have a purpose in all of this. And all that is powerful and all that is true. And because of that, some people's response is to go to one of two areas where the pendulum is swung strong on one side and then it swings strong to the other. One person's response is to say, you have no idea of the past. Because of the past, there's no way God could ever use me now. And to that, we say all the time, God doesn't call the qualified, but God qualifies the called. 
This whole series is about him saying, I want to take people that are broken and I want to use them, make them accomplish great things. Taking broken stories and making them into these stories of, of redemption and purpose. And so if we're sitting here saying, you don't understand, my past is going to hold me back. I'm telling you, God doesn't call the qualified. Every baptism story we heard today was a story of redemption. About I didn't have my life figured out, but through Jesus I did. On the other side, and this is really important for us to grasp this. Because sometimes I've seen churches that kind of trumpet this message and everyone matters and all that stuff, and all that is true. But then the pendulum could swing strongly on the other side where people say, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. Like, God's always going to forgive me. I can keep on continuing to do the things that I've always done, and it's just bringing about destruction in our lives. I want you to get this. Own your mistakes. Don't let your mistakes own you. If we're trying to find a balance in these two areas so the pendulum doesn't swing too too strong on one side or the other, don't let your mistakes own you is what we've been trumpeting up until this point right now. To say, I'm not being defined. I am not just the sum of all of my mistakes. And if I think that, I fail to realize the grace and goodness of Jesus in my life. And so I'm not just the sum of my mistakes. I cannot allow my mistakes to own me or my mistakes to define me. But part of my understanding the grace of Jesus in my life is that once I realize how he sets me apart, then I realize that when I make mistakes, it's not enough simply to just keep on making those mistakes. But when I mess up, I got to fess up. Man, when I'm, when I'm stuck, when I make those mistakes, and, and when I hurt people around me, the very best thing I could do, because sometimes I, I think we try to make this whole thing way too easy. Like, like, without doubt, when we look at Scripture, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the idea there is all it takes is confession, and God wants to forgive us. But I think sometimes, here's how me and you do life. We think, man, I've, I've made a mistake And all I got to do is at the end of my night say, God, I'm so sorry for all my mistakes. Everything's good. Let me go to bed and sleep very comfortably. That's not only my mistakes. See, when there's people that I hurt, the first thing, when David sins, David that we talked about last week, when he sinned, he said, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And he goes in true repentance. But then part of it is also going to people that we've hurt and people that we've offended. Because in that, you and I learn what humility is all about. And if I mess up, I want to own that mistake. And sometimes that means, man, if, if I've hurt people in my life, and I want to see restoration happen in my family, the very best thing I could do is to go to the people that I've hurt and humbly apologize and say, listen, I've made a mistake, but I'm not who I used to be. That isn't my story. Pastor Stephen says it this way. He says, if, if I'm not dead, God's not done. Like, yes, that is part of my story, but that's not who I am anymore. That's not my story. I have something better. There's something more I should be doing. And so I'm going to go and own my mistake, but I'm not going to allow that mistake to own who I am. Instead, I'm going to be a changed person, and I want you to see the change that's being brought inside of me. Own those mistakes. Don't let those mistakes own you. Final thing, number three is this. Choose to live in that confidence. Now, confidence isn't cockiness. It's not arrogance. 
It's arriving at a spot of realizing, man, there's no way I could do this alone. But despite my being unqualified, despite the fact that I don't deserve the grace and the goodness of Jesus in my life, he has chosen to redeem me. He's chosen to set me apart. And so because of that, I'm going to choose to live in a confidence, not of my own making, because I'm not defined by the things that I've done. I'm defined by the person I've become because of what Jesus did. That's why it says this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Being confident of this very thing, that God is doing a work in our lives, and that it might not be fully realized right now. I'm not where I want to be in the future, but I'm a whole lot further along than where I used to be in the past. And so when I look at my story, when I look at people who say, you're not qualified, you're not good enough, pastor, you're not walking around with a suit and tie on on a Saturday while you're out shopping, people look at us and say, you're not good enough. And we say, listen, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm a whole lot farther than I used to be. And so because of that, I'm on this journey of continuing to explore the greatness and the goodness of Jesus in my life. And when I make those mistakes, I own those mistakes. I don't let those mistakes own me. So we have to be so careful as followers of Jesus. To find our identity. To find who we are. In and only in Him. That He is truly the great I Am. And that's all it took to describe who He is. And I find my identity in Him and not in having success. Because when we do that, when we become ultra competitive, it starts to work to our disadvantage. Remember a few years ago, I was, I was leading a, a youth group. We had a winter retreat, and, and we had a guy who was just an incredible speaker, uh, one of the best speakers, a uh, youth evangelist-type person who become good friends, and, and just an incredible speaker. And he spoke on Friday night, and he did a great job. And, man, the kids were excited. It was, it was a really good Friday night, and the kids were excited. There was a response on Friday night. And, and then Saturday morning, again, we had a little challenge on Saturday morning. It was really good. But then Saturday afternoon, we played Ultimate Frisbee. And it was while we were playing Ultimate Frisbee that I learned that our youth evangelist was very, very competitive. And he's out there that week trying to minister to students, and he's out there playing Ultimate Frisbee. And before I know it, he's out there, and his team's not having success. And he's out throwing the Frisbee down and yelling and screaming. And I'm like, dude, tonight you've got to speak to some kids that respect you. And if that's your character, it's not going to work. To his credit, that night he owned his mistake. He apologized for it. But we have to be so careful because you and I, we have a tendency to want to compete. You and I have a tendency to want to win. But God is feeling something so much more powerful inside of us. He's saying, I want to call you to greatness. I want to call you, no matter what your past looks like, that you still have a bright future and a hope and a a plan for your life. But it might not look like the success that the world's looking for. He says, when I came to show you what greatness was about, I came in serving people. And so I call you to greatness. Now, greatness is going to look very different, but I want us to understand the calling for us is just as real. God called broken people to accomplish great things. Right now, I believe in 2017, in our country right now, God is calling broken people to do great things.
Let's pray. And just as, as, as we're gathered this morning, I said this last week, but I want to reiterate this. Man, every time that we come together as a church and, and we approach God's word, it, it leaves us challenged to, to be changed. It leaves us with an invitation to, to feast on the greatness and the goodness of who Jesus is. And so just as we gather right now, I'm not going to ask you to stand up this morning or do anything like that. But I'm asking you right now, just in, in, the, in the quietness of this moment, just to examine your heart and ask you this one question. Right now, what's the one thing that's, that's holding me back? What's the one thing that is not allowing me to experience freedom in this area of my life? Maybe for you, it's, it's that your past has owned you those mistakes have haunted you and you've never been able to get past them and because of that you think of yourself as a failure that's your story I want to tell you right now I want to speak truth in your life that God is speaking to you right now saying that does not define who you are for your mistake is not who you are you're so much better than that Maybe those mistakes are things you've just never fessed up to. Maybe you've never uh, truly repented to God. Or maybe there are people in your life that you have to go to and humbly admit those failures for God to bring about restoration. There's a chance for you to respond. Maybe for you, like the six people this morning, you're just ready to take the next step in your life. You're ready to give your life to Jesus and to celebrate salvation. You're ready to take that next step and and be baptized and to follow him in believer's baptism. Whatever it is, in the quietness of this moment, I want you to do business yourself with God. There's a way for us to help out with that. We'd love to be part of that journey. But this is an intensely personal decision between you and God. What is God doing in your life right now? God, I want to celebrate this morning who you are. God, as Jesus is lifted up in our midst, he's drawing people to himself. And so, God, I pray that in our midst as a church right now, that that's all that we're about. We're not about patting ourselves on the back or or any of those things, but lift up what Jesus is doing. And that as he is lifted up, that God, he'll draw people to himself. And I pray that for us right now, if there's someone who doesn't know him, that today would be the day of their salvation. If there's someone that has to follow him in some sort of obedient step, God, that today would be the day that they take that step as we celebrate who he is. It's in his name we pray. Amen.